The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Well, this morning, if you have a Bible, if you have a Bible, we will be in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And just I'm going to give you uh, my outline from the very beginning uh, so you can have it and you can have it in your mind. And the first point will be we'll look at the what of the resurrection. And then the second point, we're going to look at the so what of the resurrection. And then finally, I'm going to poise, uh, present it to you. The so now what of the resurrection, the what of the resurrection, the now what, and then the so what of the resurrection. And so let's go ahead. If you have your Bible open or if you have your phone on you and you have the Bible app, go ahead and pull that out as well. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15 verses one through eight. And then we're going to look at different parts of 15, but we'll read verses one through eight to start. The apostle Paul says this. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, he, and, and he, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. We'll continue through verse 10. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we submit our lives to your word. We know that that you have spoken to us today. You have spoken to us in your son and you have spoken to us through your word. And so the next 30 minutes or so, Father, we, we pray that you would give us ears to hear that you'd open the, the eyes of our hearts to see your truth and that you'd open wondrous things out of your word that we may believe your word, that we may rejoice in your word, that we may obey your word. Father, I pray that, that you would do a work within us by the power of your spirit so that we would leave this place loving and worshiping and being more committed to Jesus than we did when we walked into these doors. So we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would do your work all for the glory of Jesus, our risen King. Amen. Amen. All right, church. So look at with me how Paul describes the gospel, that it is of first importance. You'll see in verse chapter two. Now, now there are many truths that we should know that found in the Bible, but what precedes all other teachings and what is preeminent over all other things is the gospel. Paul says that the gospel, it is of first importance. In, in verse two, Paul says that we are saved by the gospel. And in verse one, he goes so far to say that we grow in the Christian life by this same gospel. 
And so, church, if we get the gospel wrong, this good news, then what we have is not Christianity, but just another man-made religion that produces self-righteous people. And so before we continue on, then, if it is this important, if it is of first importance, I think it's good that we ask the question, Okay, what is this gospel? What is this news that can transform our lives and that can change a person's eternal destiny from hell to heaven? Well, look with me. We read it, but look with me at verse three, where Paul says this. That I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. And the first key aspect of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. Secondly, that Christ was buried. And then finally, Christ was raised on the third day. And so that first point, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And so before we, in a little bit, we're going to look at the historical reality of the resurrection. We're going to see that, that this resurrection, it really did happen. However, before we do that, we also need to see and make sure that, that the cross of Jesus, the death of Christ, that it is a historical certainty. It happened in a space-time continuum. And so in, a, in addition to the account of the four Gospels, uh, in addition to that, both prominent Jewish and Roman historians during Jesus's time and, and soon thereafter, including uh, guys named Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, and other historians, they all, non-Christians, testify to the fact in their writings that Jesus of Nazareth, that he was arrested, that he was flogged, that he was crucified, that he died, and that he was buried. And so listen, Jesus's death on the cross, it's as certain as anything else we could ever know in history. It's a historical fact. But look again at that phrase with me. Does Paul just say that Christ died and then he moves on? Does he just share a historical fact? No, what does he say? Christ died, why? For our sins. And so in one phrase, the Apostle Paul, he gives both assent to the historical event of the cross, but then he also gives the theological significance of the cross. Why did Jesus die? He died to pay the penalty for our sins. You, you see, Jesus' death on the cross, it's not some mythological legend that was created throughout the millennia to help people cope with the sufferings and the woes of this world. No, Jesus actually died on the cross and he did so to make atonement for and to pay the penalty for you and I's sin. On the cross, in our place, and for our sake, he died the death that you and I deserved to die. You see, from the very beginning, the Bible tells us that God told the first humans, Adam and Eve, that the penalty for sin was death. And so when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, not only did sin enter into the world, but also sin's consequence, suffering and death entered into the world as well. And so because sin entered into the world through the human race, through Adam, sin still exists in every single one of us. You and I, we are sinners, right? By nature, we're sinners by desire, and we're sinners in our doing. And the Bible tells us that in our sinning against God, that we have disobeyed God as our lawmaker, that we have disregarded God as our creator, and that we have defiantly opposed God as our authority and as our king. 
over our lives. And in our sin, we are separated from the life of God. And so that as the Bible teaches, we are dead in our sins. But church, listen to this great truth. What Paul says here in verse three, that while we were still dead in our sins, Christ came to die for our sins. Jesus endured the Roman flogging, which ripped apart the skin and the ligaments in his back, leaving him unrecognizable. He endured the humiliation and the shame of carrying the cross while the jeering crowd hurled insult after insult and spit upon him in disdain. He was voluntarily hoisted upon the cross, suffering unbearable pain and agony as he suffocated to death. And listen, above all of that, Jesus bore the unimaginable fury of the almighty wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sins in our place and for our sake so that you and I could be forgiven and reconciled back to God. And listen, church and friends, he did all of this for you, not because he saw you at your very best. No, listen, the Bible says that Jesus saw you at your very worst, at the most evil moments of your life. And still he went to the cross for you. Christ Jesus died for your sins. Paul would put it this way in Romans chapter five. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not not, not for the righteous, but for the ungodly. And he would go on to say that one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps maybe for a good person, one would dare to die. However, God shows his love for us, for you and I, every single person in this room and every single person in this world. He shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He left the glories of heaven. He became one of his creation. He lived a humble life of obscurity. And he was humiliated through his flogging, through his suffering, and through his death on the cross because of his great love for you. Christ died for your sins so that through faith in him, you might become the righteousness of God in his sight. This is what the Bible calls the the great exchange that, that on the cross, Jesus, the perfect, the holy, the sinless one, he placed upon himself the sins of the whole world. Maybe to put it another way, he placed upon himself our tattered and our filthy garments of sin. And then through his sacrifice, he now offers to clothe you with his perfect righteousness. The Bible would say in 2 Corinthians 5 that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And so listen, by nature and from birth, every single one of us, we are dead in our sins. But listen, through faith and for all eternity, every single one of us can become righteous in Jesus Christ. If you would place your faith in him. The Bible would say such that 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 what can be pronounced over every single one of your lives, no matter how sinful you may feel yourself to be, this pronouncement can be placed over your life. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And so before we move on, what does that last phrase mean? Why is that so important in accordance with the scriptures? 
It, it means simply that Jesus' death on the cross, it wasn't a spontaneous or a reactionary decision after Adam and Eve's sin. No, Jesus' death on the cross was planned in eternity past before the creation of the world, and it was prophesied in Holy Scripture thousands of years before he went to the cross. And so maybe to apply that, why that is so important, God's pursuit of us began before our first sin against him. God took the first step toward us even before we took our first step away from him. The Bible says that, that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were sons of disobedience, we were children of wrath, this is who we were. But then the two greatest words in all of the Bible, this is who we were, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And the Bible says, it's by grace you have been saved. Paul teaches that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried. And so listen, if this was the end of the sentence, then we would have reason to come this morning and to commemorate Jesus's sacrificial love for us this morning. But if Jesus is still dead, if he is still buried, then there would be no reason to celebrate for we would still be dead in our sins. But praise be to God that the sentence doesn't end there. No, what does the apostle say next? And what do the account of the gospels testify to? What is our hope this morning? What does Paul say? That he was raised on the third day. We don't come together this morning to commemorate a dead man still buried in a tomb. We come to worship this morning and to adore a risen Savior who has conquered sin, Satan, and death itself. And who has ascended to heaven and who is seated on his throne reigning over all things. The Bible says death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so again, to dispel any notion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's some theological construct or some mythological legend, and to remove any doubt that Jesus' resurrection is a historical event. The Apostle Paul says not, not only that he was, did Jesus rise from the dead, but that his, the risen Jesus appeared to the apostles, the 12 apostles, and then also to over 500 people after his resurrection. On April 14th, 1865, uh, this date marks a tragic day in the life of our country uh, because it was on this day that Abraham Lincoln, who was regarded as one of the greatest presidents of all time, right? His his face is on Mount Rushmore if you go to South Dakota. Uh, it, It was on this day Abraham Lincoln was assassinated while watching a play at the Ford's Theater. Now, how many of us sitting in this room would dispute the event, the fact that this event happened, that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated? None of us, I would hope, (laughs) because we accept the over 300 people who were in attendance and who were eyewitnesses to this assassination. We accept their testimony of their eyewitness accounts, along with the doctors and nurses who worked on Abraham Lincoln before his passing. If then... We have great confidence in the eyewitness account of 300 people. How much more then should we accept the eyewitness account of over 500 people who sold Jesus after he was risen from the dead? 
Now, I know there are some people who claim that that these 500 people, maybe they just hallucinated and that they thought they saw the risen Christ. And so because these people desperately wanted, they wished to see Jesus, not dead, but risen. They they just hallucinated and their minds tricked them into seeing him after his death. That's one uh, counter argument to the resurrection of Jesus. But the thing is, even if the disciples thought they saw Jesus after his death, even if they did hallucinate, Jesus's body would have still been in the tomb. And so all the religious people had to do was to go prove a body and dispel this hallucination. But the thing is, and what, 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 what uh, makes this a moot point, is that hallucinations don't happen collectively to 500 people at the same time. Hallucinations are an individual uh, event that, that happen to people. 500 people do not have the same hallucination at the same time. Time. This is a medical. Uh, it's medically uh, not proven. Other others say, well, well, obviously Jesus's disciples turned apostles. They stole his body. You know, they, they wanted they wanted to believe a risen Savior, and so they just they, they, they came in the in the uh, like a thief in the night, right? And they, they came and they rolled back that two ton uh, rock, and they they took Jesus's body out of the tomb. Well, for the sake of time, uh, let's just focus on one response to this objection, and and that's the future martyrdoms of these. Apostles, the apostles' death, deaths, later deaths, make no sense if the stolen body theory is true, because the apostles were killed for the claim that Christ rose from the dead. And so, not only would this theory require that every apostle maintain this life for their entire life, it would also ask us to believe that these men willingly died for what they knew to be a lie. Chuck Colson, you may you may know that name. Uh, Chuck Colson, he he was once known as uh, President Richard Nixon's hatchet man, his hatchet man, his fixer, and, and he was involved in the Watergate scandal that took place. And, and so, because of his involvement, he was imprisoned. Uh, for he was imprisoned. However, after his arrest, Chuck Colson he became a Christian through the witness of one of his friends. And so as Chuck Colson, as he was reflecting on both the resurrection and the Watergate scandal, he once said. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every single one of them was beaten. They were tortured. They were stoned. They were put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate, on the other hand, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep that lie for a merely three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So we have the biblical account. We have the eyewitnesses. And then finally, Paul says that not only did, did Jesus appear to the 500, but last of all, he says he appeared also to Paul himself. And so before becoming a Christian, Paul was vehemently anti Christian. And we, we don't have time, but Acts chapter 9, it, it, it talks about the story of Paul's conversion and how along the way, along the Damascus Road, which you might be familiar with that story, he encountered the risen Christ. And then after seeing the risen Christ, this man Paul went from being a Jesus-hating, Christian-hunting Pharisee to after his conversion, immediately proclaiming what he once despised, that Jesus is the Son of God. Could a hallucination produce something so powerfully within Paul such that every single aspect of his life was overturned and transformed? 
His character was transformed. What he believed was transformed. His mission in life was transformed. And his hatred for Jesus was transformed into a radical, self-sacrificing, and martyrdom-embracing love for Christ. In his book, More Than a Carpenter, Josh McDowell, he writes this. The resurrection of Christ is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted on humanity, or it is the most important fact in history. How do we know that the resurrection actually happened historically? Well, we've seen by biblical evidence. We've seen by the experience of the apostles. We've seen by the account, eyewitness account of over 500 people. And we've seen through the transformed life of the apostle Paul. And for the sake of time, we don't even have to have time to look at the, the birth of the church as another evidence for the resurrection. The, the resurrection of Christ. I, I want to begin here because the resurrection of Christ, it occurred in a real space-time continuum in history. And it carries with it astounding significance for our lives today. Which then leads us to our second point this morning. And don't worry, the, the next two are going to be shorter than the first one. Uh, but it leads us to our second point this morning. And that is the so what of the resurrection. The so what of the resurrection. Our living hope. Uh, look at with me verse 17 and verse 20. Where Paul says this. And if, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still dead in your sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You, you see kind of what we talked about a little bit before, because by nature we are dead in our sins. We don't merely need moral reformation in our lives. No, we need spiritual resurrection to take place within us. The gospel teaches that Christ came to this earth not to make bad people good, but he came to this earth to make dead people alive. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What we need is to be brought from death to life. And so in order to get to heaven, we need to receive the new birth. In the good news of the gospel if you're not yet a Christian this morning, the good news of the gospel is that this spiritual life is not reserved for an exclusive class, but that it is available to everyone who would receive Christ Jesus by faith in the salvation that he freely offers to you this morning. The, the Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. Whenever we turn from our sin, whenever we denounce our own self-sovereignty over our lives, and when we trust in Jesus by faith, when we confess him as Lord of our lives, the Bible says, and every Christian in this room can testify that something supernatural happens, that we are given new life. And so if you are a Christian in this room, then listen, resurrection life now flows through your veins. Through faith in Jesus, through faith in his cross and his resurrection, we can experience spiritual resurrection. But, but secondly, not only do we receive new life through Jesus's resurrection. Secondly, Jesus's resurrection, it gives us unshakable confidence in the face of death. Read with me again, verses 20 through 22. 
2, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus, he would put it this way in John chapter 11, when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, listen, he will never die. There, there are some, even some Christians, right, after they, they believe that after they die, they will eventually and eternally float on the clouds with the angels, right, strumming the, har- the harps in heaven. That, that heaven will be this perpetual existence in a disembodied state. However, what Paul teaches here and what the, Jesus teaches throughout the Gospels is that when he returns, when Jesus returns to this earth, we will receive new physical resurrection bodies, to enjoy this transformed, restored, and made new creation here on this earth that Jesus will make new. And so because Christ was raised, every Christian will be raised on the last day. Through Jesus' resurrection, we do experience a spiritual resurrection. And when Christ returns to this earth, we will experience a physical resurrection as well. So just think about that. No more disease. No more sickness, no more chronic pain, and no more death. Death will be no more. Only the pure enjoyment of God's perfect presence for all eternity in this new creation. This is the future that awaits every single Christian. And so listen, if you hear nothing else this morning, if you hear nothing else, please Hear this. If you are not trusting in Christ, if you're not yet a Christian, then listen, this life is the best it's ever going to get for you. But if you are trusting in Christ by faith, then the best of this life is just a foretaste of what's to come. Because the physical resurrection of the believer from the dead is as certain as the empty tomb. A pastor of old named John Flavel, he said this, the resurrection of Christ out of his grave is the very ground of our hope for a resurrection out of our own grave. Paul would put it this way in verse 51 through 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. Church, does this not give you unshakable confidence in the face of death? And finally, the the, the third so what? Jesus' resurrection gives us hope in times of fear. Paul, Paul tells the Corinthian church throughout this that the resurrection of Christ gives us abiding hope to to serve Christ and to live for him no matter what we may face in this lifetime. We we live in a time of uncertainty, anxiety, fear, and even hopelessness, don't we, at times? I, I think maybe these past few years have brought to the surface, maybe more some for others, how essential hope is for life, but also how elusive hope is in our life. 
It's here one moment, and then this hope is dashed by a global pandemic or by relational conflict in our lives or by the threat of a nuclear war or by the concerns of your children's safety or by the fear of not making ends meet and not paying your bills or by your own terminal illness or that of a loved one. Hope is essential for our lives, but too often hope is elusive in our lives. But but listen, the greatest fear in life, which is death, has been defamed and rendered impotent for all who are following Jesus. And that means that our, all our other fears in life, they lose their grip and power over us. Paul, Paul would say in Romans chapter 8 that I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, now listen, believing in Jesus, it doesn't mean that he removes all hardship from your life. On the contrary, Jesus said that the pathway to life, that it's hard and it's narrow and few, in fact, find it. But, but here's the key. This is how we can have hope in times of fear. Jesus said that in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Before his resurrection, Jesus was with, he was among his followers. But now after the resurrection, Christ lives within his followers by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that no matter what may come your way, we know that the risen Savior, the one who has conquered sin, Satan, and death, he is with us to the very end of the age. There's a hymn named Because He Lives, and it goes something like this. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth the living just because he lives. Jesus' resurrection produces new life within us. It gives us unshakable confidence in the face of death, and it gives us hope in times of fear. Jesus, our Lord, he is, as we sung earlier, he is our living hope. And so finally, we come to the third and final point this morning. We had the what of the resurrection, the now, uh, the, the so what of the resurrection, and then finally, the so now what of the resurrection. What is your personal response to the resurrection of Christ? How will you respond to this news of the resurrection. And so I want to speak to maybe two groups of people this morning. First, if you are a Christian this morning, I want you to be encouraged by the historical reality and by the significance of the resurrection for your life. That Jesus really did die and he really did rise again. Now, I want you to be encouraged that he is your living hope, that he's given you new life, that you'll receive a new resurrection body one day. And therefore, because of that truth, you can have hope in the face of whatever may come your life. But also because the resurrection is true, I want to encourage you to live for what will last for all eternity. Don't don't live for the things of this world. The apostle John would say that the things of this world, they're passing away, but he who does the will of the Lord abides forever. There's a saying that I often say uh, in my sermons, and that is this quote, uh, one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Your hope is in heaven if you're a Christian. So live for where your hope lies. The Apostle Paul, he would say this, 
that what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Live for what will be yours for all eternity, not for this fleeting vapor of a life. Live for Christ. Only a few more days in your journey is done. And then listen, if you don't yet know Christ this morning, then I have good news for you. He is calling you today to come to him and to receive the salvation that he won for you in his death and his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection proves that he has the power and the authority to forgive you of all of your sin, to cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness and to make you white as snow. And he has the power to give you eternal life if you would come to him and place your faith and trust in him. In, in the summer of 1859, a, a, and maybe you've heard this story before, but a man named Charles Blondin performed a stunning feat as he walked back and forth 160 feet high above Niagara Falls on a high wire, much to the amazement of the crowd that gathered. And, and once he crossed in a sack, Once he crossed on stilts, another time he crossed this high wire 160 feet above Niagara Falls on a bicycle. And he even one time carried a stove and cooked an omelet on this high wire. And then he he was doing this routine for uh, for a few weeks. But then on July 15th, 1859, uh, Blondin, he walked back and forth across the tightrope to Canada, back from USA to Canada, and he returned pushing a wheelbarrow. And the story continues that after he pushed this wheelbarrow across while blindfolded, blindfolded, he asked the audience, do you believe that I can push 200 pounds of, uh, in this wheelbarrow across the wire? And, and much to the amazement, the, 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 the crowd was enraptured in what Blondin was doing. And so in unison, they said, yes, we believe you can do this. And then Blondin asked the crowd, who then will get into this wheelbarrow? Of course, no one got into the wheelbarrow. (laughs) Listen, it is one thing to intellectually believe something. You can believe all the facts about Christianity. You can know many things about the Bible. You can even quote the gospel in your sleep. But the question isn't, what do you know? The question is, who do you know? Do you merely believe facts about Jesus' death and resurrection? Or have you, to piggyback off of that story, have you placed yourself in the wheelbarrow? And have you confessed the entirety of your faith and your trust and your hope in the crucified and risen Lord? Listen, it's not a church attendance that's going to get you to heaven one day. It's not moral performance either. The only way to get to heaven and the only way to receive new life now is through placing your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and receiving the gift of salvation that he freely offers to you by his grace. So I'll end by asking this question. How will you respond to Jesus today? And I'm going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And and normally uh, we're going to do something new, uh, something different this morning. And in light of the gospel preached just to you, the Apostle Paul, he said in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Listen, the power of the gospel, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
And so I want to ask just, just briefly, if there's anyone in this room, maybe, maybe for the first time, maybe, maybe you've thought, maybe you're from Oklahoma, right? You're born and raised in the church. But listen, church attendance will get you nowhere in the kingdom of God. Maybe you realize, maybe, maybe if I'm good enough one day, maybe God will let me into heaven. But the Bible says that there is righteous, not even one, that no one is good. No one seeks for God, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe you've realized for the first time that you are a sinner and that you are dead in your sins. And maybe, though, for the first time you realized you've heard about it before, but you've really realized for the first time that Jesus, he loves you and that he died for you and he rose from the dead for you to forgive you of your sin and to give you eternal life. And so this morning, if you would like to trust in Jesus with nobody's looking around, and I would just ask you if you would like to trust in Jesus, if you would just like to raise your hand, raise your hand right now. If anyone is in here who would like to trust in Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can put it, you can put it down. Amen. Listen, the, the, the invitation that Jesus gives us is open. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, I invite you to come to Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.